Turn to Malachi chapter 3. As you're turning, just let me let you know what is going to be taking place over the next couple of weeks. And so this next two sections is going to be a contrast. Today will be the contrast of those who are rejecting God. Next week will be um, what it looks like to embrace God and walk with Him and what the righteous do. Both of these groups are having conversations with one another. And God is eavesdropping on that. And so the next two weeks... Um, will be the perspective of that. So Malachi 3, 13 through 15. So your words, God speaking here, have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Well, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. I've entitled the message, When God's People Speak to Him Like the World Does or When God's People See the Lord as the World Does. And that's what we're going to encounter today uh, in these three verses that we will look at. And so as we wade again into the waters of Malachi, we're going to see the priests, mainly the priests, but the priests and the people have gotten to a place where they are tired of serving the Lord. Over the last several years in the West, particularly since the pandemic, there has been an alarming number of pastors who have considered leaving the ministry. The stress of that season, particularly 2020 and 2021, took a toll on many people for um, going all the way back into the 90s. There's a Christian research guy named George Barna that has consistently researched where is the church and what is happening, not only just in the church, but also the culture at large. And so in 2021, he did um, some extensive research to see what was happening and taking place uh, into the second year of the pandemic and what was happening in, 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 uh, in regard to are people coming to church, are they not coming to church, and what was taking place with, with a number of different things. But the stress of that season took its toll on a lot of ministers. At that time in 2021, 38% of the pastors surveyed considered seriously in 2021 of just walking away from the ministry. One of the more concerning findings was this, was that 46% of the pastors under 45 considered walking away compared to 34% of those that were over the age of 45. And the reason that is so concerning is that the church always needs a younger generation to be faithfully walking with the Lord and starting churches and ministries and taking over things. And so it was really disconcerting that about that 46% of them were thinking about walking away um, from their ministry. As I looked at this current trend, I found a couple of interesting facts that I wanted to share this morning because it's where the priests are in a different aspect, but nevertheless, this is where things are today and also they were in Malachi's generation. The average person who is not in ministry, so that would be most of you this morning, experience in their lifetime seven very significant relational breaks. That means people deeply in our lives, some event kind of happens, and then there's a break that's there, and you're no longer friends with that person or no longer deeply connected with that person. So the average person experiences seven of those in their lifetime. The studies are pretty consistent on this. A pastor experiences seven of those every year. And and part of that is they have given of their time, their energy, they've gone to the hospital, they've been with people, and then at some particular point in time, people that they've loved and, and been in relationship with decide to leave the church and walk away, and it has a devastating effect upon the pastor. And so um, another thing that I discovered is that 250 pastors a month in the U.S. today are resigning and never returning to the ministry again. That's 3,000 a year, 
And this is, this is up quite a bit um, from where it was um, before that. And they've kind of gotten to the place where they say, why serve God if it leads to an unhealthy life for myself and for the family? Now, it, it, it is a tough job, and I, I will admit that. I'm, I'm grateful that, um, for the most part, we just have a few honorary people in our congregation. Um, but my perspective of this for those pastors and for myself and for Mark and for anybody else who's going to step into the, step into the ministry. Yes, it is deeply hard. And sometimes there are devastating things happen relationally, but you cannot walk away when God has called you. At the end of the Old Testament, the priest had stepped away from God so much and were doing things outside of the biblical counsel and were wanting God to bless they're not doing what God told them to do, but they were wanting God to bless. And then they're blaming God that he's not blessing their disobedience. And so at the end, Malachi, we're here. We're almost through with this book. We've got three more weeks after this one. But now they're at a place where like, God, we're, we're tired of this. And they start talking to one another about how tired they are, that they're doing all of the stuff externally. Their heart is not engaged with God or they're not doing what God has instructed them to do. They're angry at God, and now they're talking to one another, charging God with more things that are not right, and they're tired, and they basically have quit. And so while our current ministry set in the United States is pretty clear in regard to what is happening, this is not what is happening in Malachi. These are people that aren't experiencing relational breaks. These are just men called to be priests and servants of God who are just done with all that God has asked them to do. And the main reason, and we'll talk a little bit more in a minute, is that they wanted God to bless them with tangible blessings if they were going to continue to do this work. In other words, they were in it for the money. They were in it for the status. They were in it for things that they would get. They wanted the blessings of God instead of continuing to serve God so that God would be blessed and so that God would be exalted. So when a pastor, when a priest is in this kind of state and place, their heart is no longer engaged. And you know how devastating that is for a church when the pastor's heart is not engaged in doing the work. And at the end of the Old Testament, the priests had just kind of given up and they were angry and upset with God. So today we're going to experience the seventh and last question that they ask to God, mainly the priests today saying this, but the people would have been connected to this. But it, this question flows out of a place of self-righteousness, that they think that they, if they could be in charge of things, they would do things better than God. Have you ever accidentally said that, and I hopefully accidentally think that you could control things and run things better than the Lord himself? And so... This was happening and taking place um, in the text here. And I know I say this a lot. I am so hot. Is it hot in here? <laughs> yeah, some of y'all are like, yes, it's okay. Anyway, it is like quite hot. Um, I don't. Can it be turned down just one degree? Somebody, please. There's two things back there behind you, Morgan. Can you, yeah. Whoever knows how to do that, can somebody please? I'm, I'm going to be sweating in a minute. I'm telling, just telling you. And I don't mind sweating, but I would prefer not to sweat. But anyway, all right. <clears throat> it's about to happen, okay. There's a joke that I want to tell. How many people does it take to turn down the temperature in the church? Well, <laughs> six, evidently six. Do you all need me to come back there? Because I can if I need to. Okay, all right, there we go. <laughs> it's, you press this down button. Okay, all right, okay. All right, here we go. Thank you very much. All right, oh, yes. I hear that sound. Um, I kind of don't care what you feel. I just care about myself, okay? It doesn't matter how you feel, okay? I'm going to be like the Old Testament priest. I'm just going to think of myself and, and my comfort, all right? Okay. So the priests were complaining to the Lord with with a heart that was kind of bitter at him because he was not doing enough in regard to what they wanted 
him to do. So I want to deal with this today. And so we're going to talk today about God's people. So I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody. I just want us today to listen to what's happening and taking place. These are God's people speaking this. This is not the pagan nations around Israel. These are God's priests, God's called men who have this perspective of God. And and it's brought about a devastating effect upon the people of the Old Testament. So, So if you would look with me, there are four big issues that are connected with the priests in these three verses that we will look at today. We're going to kind of divide the verses up and look at these, some important things here. So the first thing I wanted to touch on this morning is when God's people speak to him like the pagans or the the lost people around them. And so the first part of verse 13, if you would look again with me there, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. So as I said a while ago, the next two weeks are going to be this. We're going to look at two groups. So there was a group, first group, the priests and and many of the people who looked at what was happening and taking place. They had been back about a hundred years. The city had been restored. The walls around Jerusalem were fixed. The temple was up and going. And yet economically and other aspects of things, things weren't going well. And so the writers, when they had come back, said, God's going to bless you if you will walk with Him. And so they have come back and they have done these things. And the blessing wasn't happening in the way that they wanted it to. And so they charged God with wrong. They charged God with honoring evil people and not blessing His own people. They had become so blind and hard-hearted that they couldn't see that they were exactly like the nations around them. There wasn't really any clear difference between the priests and the people and the nations that worship false gods. And so they began to say to one another, what's up with God? What's wrong with God? Why is God not fulfilling what God has promised us to do? And so they spoke negative and hard things against the Lord. Next week we will see a whole other group, the remnant group, and they will speak to one another, honoring and blessing God. It's a great talk next week. But God, with both of these groups, is eavesdropping. He is listening in on what they think of Him and how He was operating and leading the land. If we remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 2, God declares to the people, I love you, and I have always loved you, and I will continue to love you. And they give the first question back to God, doubting God. Well, God, we don't see how you've loved us. And if you'll remember, God tells them, well... If you'll remember, the line of Esau doesn't exist anymore. And and you are living in many ways just like them. And you are still around. So I am keeping my love and my covenant with you. And I have taken care of the Edomites. And so you have tangible evidence that I am for you still. And so they are continuing to question God. And God is continuing to say to them all through this. We even looked at it last week. God said, if you'll come back to me, I will come to you. And so he's continuing to extend love to them. And so they're like, God, we don't see your love. But all through this book of Malachi, God's people are saying hard things to the Lord. Now, I get it, absolutely get it. When people who do not know the Lord and aren't in a relationship with him, I understand Though it's not right, I understand that they say negative things about God because they don't know His goodness and His love and His tenderness and His kindness. It's kind of like when Moses went to Egypt. And Moses goes in and he talks to Pharaoh and says, hey, you need to let God's people go. And Pharaoh says this in Exodus 5.2. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I'm not going to listen to him. He says this. He says, I will not let Israel go. So here's a pagan king speaking negatively about the Lord. And so in some ways, because they they don't know him, it's a little bit more understanding, though it is wrong to do that anyway. But that's not what we have in our text today. We have 
people who have grown up, God's covenant people, who have the revelation and the covenant and live in it, who consistently over and over have issue with how God is running things in their lives. And they turn to one another and consistently talk negatively about God. This should have been a people that spoke to one another with Christian-centered, Bible-centered, Word of God, love of God, worshiping words about who He is and how good He had been to the people. And yet the people, all they did was challenge Him every time God said something to them. Some translations of this verse say this, that when God speaks here, your words have been arrogant and they have been harsh against me. Paul, in the New Testament, speaks about this. He says in Ephesians 4.29, he said, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. One of the more popular progressive church leaders today has come out on his podcast a couple of weeks ago. And uh, all what I just read a while ago in in Ephesians 4.29 about wholesome talk, you know this. But all through the New Testament, we are encouraged to watch our tongue, right? And we are to watch what we say. Well, he has come out now and said that God, actually he used the phrase the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit has encouraged me with my lost friends to cuss a lot around them and use foul language because it will relate to them. And so I messaged him on Instagram this week and asked him the question, if the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the sacred writings of the New Testament and it tells us to watch our tongue, how is it that now that same Holy Spirit has told you alone that you can do whatever you want to do and you can ignore his original counsel? Well, he hasn't responded to me yet, and I don't think he probably will. But I wanted to pose the question to him. All around today, we have people speaking in such ways, in roles like mine, that ignore God's counsel and establish a new standard. And when that happens, that is speaking harshly against God. Because it says to God, it doesn't really matter what you've said. This is 2023. This is new things that we can do. Um, it's, it's harder to reach people, so we've got we to gotta soften things. We've got to lighten things up. And that cannot be the case. So as the Old Testament is closing, God's priests in the temple likely and in the streets and other places where they go are speaking harsh things about the work of God and the nature of God. So it's no wonder at the end of the Old Testament you have such a mess about things. So, so first of all, the first issue was God's people were speaking, and mainly the priests were speaking things against His nature and how God works. This led to a second thing. So they say back to God where they question God's discernment. And so they say to Him, secondly, they question His Word, and they say, well, how have we spoken negatively against you because God we don't see any place that we're speaking negatively against you and they had become so obstinate that they couldn't see that there was a critical nature in their heart as they spoke about the Lord and for the seventh time in three chapters they question God's discernment and what God has to say to them to say God not guilty I know you've said this But this is the seventh time we want to say back to you, we're not guilty of that. We don't have any idea what you are talking about. That is not true. So they act as if they are truthful and God is a liar. And how God sees them and what is happening in their hearts and going on in the nation. Note that they're not speaking to God. Listen, look what the text says. But you say, how have we spoken Against you, God says, your words have been hard, harsh, and arrogant against me. So here's what you have. You have priests serving in the temple who are not praying and speaking exalting words to God. 
they are in the temple speaking against God. That God isn't doing what God ought to do in regard to what God has declared about himself. What are you talking about, God? We, we, we don't know what, what kind of concern that you should have because we've not used our words against you. I was a youth minister for a long time. And we would have, uh, this is true about, about youth and, and kids, um, we would have kids that would come in, and you have in a youth ministry, you have kids that are on a wide spectrum. Some deeply love God, some are at church because their parents are making them. Some of them uh, have some social issues in regard to habits and attitudes and things of that nature. And, uh, and so I, I saw this all the time in all of my years of youth ministry. The grumblers find the grumblers. The kids that do marijuana find the other kids that are at the church that do marijuana, and they find each other. And the kids who deeply love God, you know what they do? They find each other as well. And what was happening and taking place in Judah at the end of the Old Testament is that the majority of the people were finding one another, and the consistent thing that they were doing was grumbling against God, not exalting Him, not honoring Him, not doing anything of that nature. As they came out of Egypt, this was their characteristic, right? God, Lord, we're tired of the bread. Can we have meat? God, we need water. Um, God, Moses has been up on the mountain too long. Let's make a golden calf and say that this is now our God, and this is the one that will lead us. And they had consistently done this over and over, and they had felt it was okay to respond this way. And so here you have priests who are grumbling against God and speaking to Him like Pharaoh would speak to Him, like, like somebody in Hollywood would speak about the Lord, like someone in a Muslim country would speak about Jesus, or, or someone in a Hindu country that would do that. And so God's people, His priests, <clears throat> were speaking just like those that were lost and had no clue about who He is, and then they questioned God's discernment and God's Word to them, and they did that on a consistent basis. And so I want to talk for a minute because I think it's really important for us to, to frame some of this. We are living in a time where people have grown tired of the stances that biblical Christians have stood upon since the time of the apostles. Would you agree with me? We are consistently seeing that. And while lost cultures throughout history have rejected Christianity for all kinds of reasons like their nation embraces false religions or it's just a dominant secular atheistic uh, culture or nation, or at times like way back when in the dark ages where Roman Catholicism took over things and, and people couldn't read the scripture and wouldn't be interpreted, the scripture wouldn't be interpreted in people's languages so that they could understand it. So this has always kind of been the case throughout history. But there is a large difference in our day and time than aspects of the past. Because I believe never before in the history of the church has there been more Christians pushing back against biblical truth. Again, I get it if people who live in a Hindu nation, while well, they would push back against the Bible and the exclusivity of Jesus being the only God. But never before are we seeing, it's particularly in the West, are God's people or people who claim to be God's people. I should make that difference in saying to him and pushing back against the truth. And I've read the New Testament enough by now to know that when Paul's warnings about this reality have become the reality and they are more the norm now, then we have entered into a space in the history of the church that has not been known. Here's one example of this. On Wednesday this week, November the 9th, 2023, the Pope came out and the Vatican officially came out with a new document that approved transgender people can receive baptism in the Catholic Church and become godparents affirmed by the church in certain situations. This was the stipulation. When you, kind of start, <clears throat> when you kind of start going down this road, 
you, you compromise a lot of different things and you kind of contradict yourself with a lot of different things. But this is what they said. Well, if, um, a transgender person can be, doesn't, they don't need to be repent, they don't have to repent of any of their sin. They can be baptized because they've declared this is who they are now. They can come to places where kids are being baptized and sprinkled in the church and they can become the godparents there as long as it doesn't cause a controversy or a conflict within the church. <clears throat> well, here's what that's going to lead to. They're going to start doing things in secret. This is what you do when you've got to hide things because you want to avoid conflict, and they will continue um, to do that. That stipulation, just for me, is problematic in that baptizing transgendered people without their repenting should never even be considered at all. But now it can be done in a church or a diocese if they can ensure that it will not produce a scandal. There are 20,000 Catholic buildings in the United States of America that now have legal precedent, according to the church, to be able to begin to do this inside that. And it's not just that area of concern. That is the dominant one that consistently is being pushed on a consistent basis in our culture. But I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had in and about our community where people have said to me, you need to reconsider some of your views that the church has held since the time of the apostles. Culture has changed. Things are different. The church needs to adapt to the times. And as I have often told you, I read a lot. I keep my mind steeped in the Scripture, try to keep my mind steeped in the Scripture, but also listening to what's happening and taking place so that I can share with you the lies that the culture is speaking and we can have a good discernment about many of those things. And I want to warn you of something that is becoming a prevalent language that's something Mark and I not too long ago experienced with someone who was leaving LifePoint. And we had met with them and they used this language. And now that I heard it originally from there, I hear it all the time out there in progressive Christianity and those who are deconstructing their faith. And it's this phrase, something like this. Well, you know that text that the church has always held? We need to re-examine what that actually means. We need to re-look at that. We need to take a fresh new perspective about that. Why? Well, culture's changed. That sounds oppressive about things. And, and I want to say to you and I today, and I want to lovingly make you aware and warn each of us to be discerning when you, we listen to people talk about the Scripture. Listen to me. There is nothing that needs to be reexamined. Nothing. The only thing that we need to examine is how the texts were originally written. That's it, period. And I'm hearing it over and over and over again now as I do research and I listen to people out there. God has given us a strong, good biblical view about things in the scriptures. So we look at the text and we embrace them. So we teach the Word of God here regardless of cultural shifts. We have not, listen, historic Christianity has not gotten the Bible wrong for the last 2,000 years. We've not got it wrong. So again, we continue to want people to come to faith regardless of their brokenness and their issues. But for us, we have to stand with the way the texts were originally written. And so here we have done that, and we have consistently done that. But we're in a time where it's just unprecedented what is happening and taking place all around us in regard to, again, listen to me. I, 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 I'm, I understand, again, like I said a while ago, and I know I've said it several times this morning, I get it, people who don't know the Lord, who push back against our stances. I understand that. They're lost and, 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 and they don't know Him. But I do not get it when God's people 
push back against biblical truth. And it is becoming the dominant theme. Paul warned about this. And I'm not saying we are in the last days at all, but we are in the latest day that we could ever be in right now. When people, as Paul wrote, are going to gather teachers to tell them what they want to hear, not what the scripture has to say. And so for us as a church, we've got to guard that aspect for us. At the end of the Old Testament, this was the issue. God seven times at the end of the Old Testament says, I've got this concern about you, my covenant people, and my priests. And every single time God raises an issue, they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. They challenge his word about them. This book is hard to follow, isn't it? It grates against our flesh. It calls us to die to ourselves and to take up a cross. It says, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you've got to be last. It's just a, a different mindset. And so for us, we have got to become the kind of people who don't speak to God harshly and arrogantly, but in humility always. And we cannot be the kind of people who question His Word. We've got to be the kind of people who desire to walk in obedience. And this leads to our third reality, and it's verse 14. And it's when God's people no longer see the prophet in walking in obedience. So look with me again in 14. Let's read all of that. So you have said... This is what they were talking. This is what the priests were talking about in many of the people. They were saying to one another, it is vain, useless to serve God. And what is the profit of our keeping His charge in the law and the things that they were to do or walking as in mourning over sin before the Lord of hosts? Now, chapter 3, verse 14, what we just read there, that is deep content of God putting His finger on what they were talking about. Again, I want to remind you, he's been eavesdropping, listening to what the priests have been talking about him. So they would in the streets, they would in the temple, they would in the shops, they would in the fields, everywhere they went, they were saying, it is no longer worth it to walk with God and to serve God. This word vain here, and I think we've got this, the sub point up here, they said that it's not worth it to serve the Lord. Did you hear that statement? God's priests were saying it was no longer worth it to serve God according to what the Scripture has to say. No longer worth the effort. The word vain, and I don't know what your translation says, but the ESV uses the word vain. It means useless or unprofitable. Now when they settled the land and they finally had come into the land under Joshua, at the very end, Joshua gathers the people They've come together and they're about to go back to where they have conquered the sections where all 12 tribes were going to be and what they were going to be doing. Joshua says to them in 24:14, Now therefore, fear the Lord. It's going to say it seven times, the word serve. Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And you serve the Lord. 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day who you are going to serve. Whether it's going to be the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then Joshua says this famous phrase, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And when Joshua died out and those that were around when Joshua died out, you get the book of Judges and they did not serve the Lord anymore. And God allowed plunderers to come in and to punish them and to teach them to stay connected to Him. So here are the priests. This is what the priests are saying. We have served you, God. We have sung the songs we have tithed, we have prayed, we put sackcloth and ashes on and 
we've mourned and we prayed. And this is what the priest said. We don't see like that it's worth it anymore because you're not giving us stuff. We want more blessing from your hand, God. And they just quit the work. Oh, they did external motions, but their heart was not engaged in it in, true prior, in a true priority. And so they just said, serving God is not like it's cracked up to be and like God says it is. They had lost the joy in it, and this is absolutely disastrous for a church, for a denomination, and for a people when they decide that it's no longer worth it to serve the Lord and to give of their time to Him. And so not only did they exchange the glory of God for a lie, but they exchanged serving the Lord in joy as something that held little value. It's not worth it anymore. And I tell you, we've got some little kids at this church, and I love our children. I love our children. I'm glad the way we do things here, because I, I, I want to know them. I want to know their names, and I want them to know me. And some of you serve, and you invest in them, and some of you uh, do some other things, not just in our kids. You do other things at the church. And I just want to remind everybody in the room this morning that it is worth it, absolutely worth it, whether it's with children, mowing the grass, sweeping, um, doing whatever it is here at the church to serve God and to honor Him. It is absolutely worth it. And if we ever get to the place where the gospel is not worth it, then we are in a crisis mode. And so here are the priests saying to one another, what are we doing? Day after day, all this animal sacrifice, all this stuff, it's no longer worth it. He sent us away for 70 years. Now we've come back. We've been back 100 years. Where's all the blessing, God? And they were giving up on what God had called them to do. Paul Apple wrote of this. I read this. He said, Christ is our perfect example in never doubting the goodness or the justice of God. Despite the fact that he was truly innocent and without sin and yet meek and humble in heart, and despite the fact that he knew exactly what God the Father requires and fulfilled all righteousness without calling God's command burdensome, even in willingly taking all of our sin upon himself, he was never bitter or complained against God's goodness or justice in Christ's life. So here they are. It's not, it's not worth it. Our young adults in the room, we've just, we've just started a few weeks ago a ministry called Steadfast that we've never had before. And I want to I encourage you today. We've never had this in the 15 years that I've been here. So we've got this young adult group that's going and I, want to, I just want to encourage you this morning that it's worth it for you now to help us get this established so that when you get older, you're probably going to get a job and you're going to go away and you'll come back and see your parents and see us sometimes. What a great thing that you can, you can, you can come back and see. I was a part of starting that. That I, I, I went and I, I learned and I allowed Nick and Jacqueline to invest in my life, and I invested in Nick and Jacqueline's life. And together we built this thing called Steadfast. And so our young adults, it's worth it. It's worth it to, to be a part of this and getting this established. Everybody else, it is worth it to take the stands that we stand on and to worship and to love one another and to be faithful. It is worth it to serve the Lord. Secondly, they said, there's no benefit in keeping his word. And so they say, they say, what is the profit of keeping his charge? Now, this word profit, we usually talk about it in profit and loss. That's not what this means in the Hebrew. It's a word that means this. It means to get a cut or a percentage of something. So listen to what the priests were saying. Faithfully saving. This is my calling. I'm serving, serving. I'm consistently here. I want a cut or a percentage for myself for serving the Lord. And so this is what they're saying. There's no benefit in keeping his word because what is the cut? What's the profit for myself? What's my percentage 
of keeping the Word of God. You know what sometimes the profit is of serving the Lord faithfully? Just faithfully serving the Lord. Sometimes you just get nothing. See, we live in such a way in our brand of American Christianity that we think if we serve Him, we're des- we, we deserve something. And we don't. Now, God's a blessing God. Praise God that He's a blessing God. But we don't serve so that we get something. That's not how God has set this up. But He does give. But we serve to honor Him. And so here you've got the priests who felt like they deserved something. So in time, you know what they did? You know what happened from this moment? So here you've got the priests about 460 years before the birth of Christ or a little less than that and about 480 years before Jesus one day as an adult comes into the temple and starts turning over tables. So over a period of about 480 years, this idea here from the priests At the end of the Old Testament, where's my cut? Where's my percentage? You fast forward 480 years, and they've got a business going in the temple where people bring a lamb, and they're like, "Mm, yeah, we can't. There's something wrong with your lamb. Here, come over here with me. I've got a friend, and he'll sell you a lamb that will accept as the sacrifice. And the priests were getting their cut of the sacrificial system. Now, you can... If we could put it up on the screen this morning, we could put up and we could hear preaching today all over America today that people will say, if you sow, you're going to get money back. If you'll sow, you'll get this. If you'll sow, you'll get that. Sometimes, you know what? You just sow, you just sow, and you get more of Jesus, and that's all you get. And sometimes we sow, and God meets a need. But this idea here of getting personal benefit was not biblical. Some of Jesus' people sometimes long for personal gain, and that is straight-up opposition to a selfless life that's devoted to Jesus. I think we're in Psalm 119, 121 today, so in a few weeks we're going to be back in the 30s. This is one of my favorite Psalm 119 verses because I need it. Maybe you need it. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.36, Incline my heart, God. This is my prayer. Incline my heart to your testimonies because if you don't help me in that, the next part says this, and not to selfish gain. My natural tendency, your natural tendency, if we are not submitted to the Lord and our heart is not inclined to the testimonies of God, is that we are selfish, 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 even spiritually. And so sadly, there have been a number of complaints that have really risen since the pandemic of people charging God for doing certain things. People have quit coming to church People have quit serving in any kind of way because they felt there was no longer any value in it. And so many Christians still today, let's just be honest, you you know some, I know some, have decided it was okay just to stay home and just watch church on a screen. And if you're sick, do that. But there's nothing like being here on a Sunday morning. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And if this is you, do not give up. It's worth serving, following the Lord. Come back and I'll let you sit with me if you're watching at home and you've been gone a while. Come back and you can sit with the pastor. I'd love to sit with you. And I'd love to worship with you. It is worth it to gather, right, with God's people and to study His Scripture. So here are the priests like, there's no longer profit in obedience. And so they didn't feel like, they felt it was vain to serve the Lord It was like, why do we, where's my cut? If I'm going to do all the work, where's my cut? And then thirdly, they said this, there was no benefit walking in brokenness over the sin of the land. And so this verse is just full of important things. And so verse 14, you have said, it's vain to serve God. 
and I want to get my cut, but I'm not getting my cut. So what's, what's the profit of keeping its charge? And then thirdly, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And I tell you today, boy, have you, have you watched any news? Have you read anything? This world is falling apart all over the world. The brokenness in our country, the brokenness in the Middle East, the brokenness of, of all kinds of things is just dominating things. And so here you have the priests at the end of the Old Testament where sin was just rampant all through Judah. And they're like, it's not worth it anymore to put on sackcloth and ashes and fast and pray because there's just too much brokenness and we've been doing all the things that God's told us to do and there's no restoration, there's no blessing. So there's like, there's not a reason as God's people to be broken over the sin of the world anymore. And I want to remind you now this morning, there is a reason to be broken over our nation that is full of people confused about who God is and that there's an answer to what they are longing for more than anything else. I want to show a video. Aaron, can you put this video up? This took place yesterday in London. This is a pro-Hamas, kill Jews rally in London yesterday. Hundreds of thousands of people. That's a symbol of brokenness of our world. And we, this is why we're walking through Malachi right now this fall, is because a world who thinks like that needs people like you and I who will walk biblically and see that it's worth it to mourn over the brokenness of our world. Boy, you just look at our country. It doesn't, it just, just go to Walmart. Just go some other place and you can see that people are troubled and longing for things. Never before, I just read a study this week, never before in the history of our country has there been more with this, this age group that we've just started this ministry of 20-year-olds to young 30s who have been more suicidal in the history of our country. And that all flows from a place of deep brokenness. And what I want to remind you and I of this morning is that the priests in the Old Testament thought it's not worth it anymore to be broken over the sin of the land. And I want to say to you and I today that it is absolutely worth it to consistently fall on our face before God to be concerned about our country. In November, it's not going to fix things, folks. Only Jesus fixes brokenness. Only Jesus does. And that's why it's important for the church to be a biblical place, not a feelings place, but a biblical place. And so here you've got, again, you've got the priests who just don't care anymore. They're not falling on the ground before God. And now to take it even further, they say this in 15, and we're about to wind this thing down this morning. When God's people believe that God's no longer. So, that, so they say, I'm not concerned about brokenness in my land. But then they begin to say this about God. Well, then he, I don't think he is either. Because if he was really concerned, then wouldn't he do something about all the stuff that we see. So in verse 15, look what the people, the priests, mainly the priests were saying. And now we call arrogant people blessed. Why do we call them blessed? Because when they looked around, they saw that evildoers not only prosper, but those evildoers put God to the test and they just seem to escape. So this is the last usage, there's four of them, with the word blessing in Malachi. This is the last phrase about blessing and blessed in Malachi. Chapter 2, two I will curse your blessings. 3.10, God challenged them to test him. We talked about that last week in the tithe to see if he will not bless. And then he speaks of a future eschatological blessing that will come when John the Baptist comes and when Jesus would come. And now... He says, 
we're just going to turn the word blessed to mean this, that God just seems to bless the arrogant. And basically what they were saying to God was this, is God, we think you don't do things fairly with us because every time we look around, it just seems like you're blessing everybody but your people. The word arrogant here in verse 15 is, means it's a, it's a Hebrew word called zed, Z-E-D. It's a presumptuous pride of seeing oneself as important where the mindset leads to a defiance and a rebellion. So these are their feelings, perspectives of God. And so they look around, they're like, why should I care? Because it sure doesn't seem like God cares. And God does care. Can you imagine being God and looking down at a world that you had created and purposed to be intimate with you and all it wants to do is to go against you? God's love and his patience and his goodness is amazing. But they put God to the test as they looked and they just seemed, according to the priest, to just get away with it. Now I want to close our time today with a little bit different perspective. Next week we're going to, it's going to be a little more, going to be more positive next week. We're going to look at those that really love God and what God does. But I wanted to close with a fresh perspective of goodness. And the fifth point's not in the text. It'll there next week, but I'm adding it today. And I want to talk about, as we close, when God's people get to a place where they know that he is enough, that there's not anything else that's needed. When you do a flyover of the entire Bible, you will see men and women and sometimes children who know that following God is worth it and one day God will deal rightly with injustice and he will make everything right. But the future will prove that it is worth it to serve God and I wholeheartedly believe it's not just the future that will prove that it's worth it to serve God. I think today you can see that it's worth it to serve God. And so... There are many who find Jesus fully satisfying in the scripture throughout church history. And though the world gives great affirmation to pride and arrogance and a number of different things, rather than the eternal, I want to remind you and I this morning that there are those that did not live this way and they become that great cloud of witnesses that remind us that it's worth it to walk with God. The Christian faith from a purely human perspective doesn't make sense at all to the world. That's what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 1. It just seems foolishness to the world and they don't get it. Let me remind you of a few things. When Joseph was being sold by his brothers into slavery, when he was being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, when he was forgotten by the cupbearer as he remained in prison, we read that God had not forgotten about him, and in God's perfect timing, what did God do? God put him where God needed him to be. When Abraham was told one day, he'd waited a long time, you're going to have a son, heir of the promise. I want you to take him to the mountain, though, and I want you to put a knife to him and sacrifice him. Abraham gets his stuff. This is one of the, this is one of the most amazing stories in the Old Testament gets his stuff and takes Isaac and they go to the mountain of God to do what God said, though logically that made zero sense. Why would God want me to slay the heir of the promise? And Abraham did it. And Abraham got there and he raises the knife up and God proves he's still in control and he provides a sacrifice that would be sufficient. As David fled from, his, from Saul... God had not lost control. David would one day be king and David trusted. As Job was living righteously, he lost everything on earth that was dear to him. But God drew near. He, Job went through a number of different things. He got bad advice from his friends. His wife said certain things to him. And he said certain things about God. And God spoke to him and God restored Job's perspective. And he blessed Job. 
Rahab took the step of faith to identify with and save the Jewish spies because she had heard of the renown and the fame of God. And she was rescued at the fall of Jericho and she becomes a part of the lineage of Jesus' family. Not once in any of those people that I've just mentioned did God forget or did God get distracted regarding the lives of those faithful God pursuers. They didn't question Him. They, did, they, did, they didn't fight Him. He remained in control. And though it looked like life was out of control, they trusted and God blessed and God was present with them as they continued to seek Him. And I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful for those stories that are in the Bible and models for us that show that it's worth it to walk with God and to seek God no matter what happens and no matter what comes. And I want to finish with a story of a guy that you may have heard of. One day he was outside the city of Jerusalem and some guys had dragged this guy named Stephen outside and they picked up rocks and this young man was there. His name was Saul and they took these rocks and they stoned Stephen to death and this young man named Saul held the coats as he watched Stephen die and he watched Stephen look up into heaven and see Jesus standing. And then this young man was moved by that moment where he thought the gospel was not worth it And then he was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to oppose the gospel. And so it says in Acts 8.1, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And so he decided, I'm going to destroy this thing. So there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, that young man, was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 9, 1, whole chapter later. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's a guy, gospel's not worth it. I'm going to oppose the gospel. I'm going to prove of Stephen's death. I'm now going to join in and be the ringleader of destroying the gospel. And then the gospel interrupts life. And one day he's going with these official papers, and I'm going to destroy the church. And as he went on his way, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You find it interesting. Saul's response. Who are you, Lord? He knew something happened in that moment that could not be explained. And though I think he had an idea of what had happened, Jesus says, well, I'm Jesus. You're persecuting me. But I tell you what, if you'll get up and go into the city... Somebody's going to come along and tell you what to do. And then Acts 9.9 says this. that The gospel is to be contemplated. You ever been so emotional you can't eat? For three days he was without sight and he didn't eat or he didn't drink. And I think he was thinking about what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do? Because I was going this way, and now the the gospel has interrupted my life. I've encountered Jesus. What in the world am I going to do? And Jesus is sovereign over the gospel. Saul has a dream where this guy named Ananias is going to come and see him. And then God comes, Jesus comes to Ananias and says, Hey, I want you to go to this guy named Saul. And Ananias is like, Wait, 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 wait. That's the guy that's causing all the problems. Yeah, but you just go. And Ananias goes. And then here's what happens in Acts 9. The gospel begins to direct Paul's life. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all. This is Ananias speaking. But the Lord said to him, you go. He is my chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And listen to what Paul learned early on. Ananias tell him this. I will show him 
how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Acts 13 through 28 is the picture of Saul's life, his ministry, missionary journeys. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows it's a, not Jerusalem. He's on his way to Rome. And he stops along the way to speak to the Ephesian elders. And he says this. He says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, then eventually on to Rome, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me. Listen to this. Listen to the change of the guy who's like, I'm destroying this thing called Christianity. The Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then later, he writes a second letter He does all these incredible ministry things that we read about in the book of Acts, and some of them we don't even know where he went. And then he writes these words, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 and following, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one, but I'm talking like a madman. Now listen to this. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from that, among other things, there is the daily pressure of me thinking about all the churches that we've started, and I'm worried about them. Are they okay? And then finally, he leaves Jerusalem and he's taken to Rome And he's in prison and he writes the last book that we know that he ever wrote. And he said these words, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, what is laid up for me now is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me, but to also all who have loved his appearing. When I was a youth minister in Houston, I went and did a chapel service for the Cincinnati Reds and the Houston Astros. And I framed my talk with what I just did here. Paul's first words are, who are you, Lord? His last words are, I finished. I walked, I stayed faithful, and it was worth it. It's so worth it that it's greater than loneliness. So let me close with this. So Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and he's gone to Thessalonica. I don't know what Demas found in Thessalonica, but it was better than staying with his friend Paul. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, and when you come, bring that cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and also the books, and above all else, will you bring the parchments? Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he is strongly opposed to our message. Now listen to some of these last words. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me. Everybody deserted me. 
may it not be charged against them. Here's why loneliness can't compare to the glory of Jesus. But the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he's going to bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I can't wait to meet him one day. I, I want to see Jesus more than anybody. Okay, I do. I can't, I, can I, I hope I get, I know heaven has no time, but let's say it did. I'd love to have 30 minutes with Paul. And hear him say, it's worth it, it's worth it, it's worth it to walk with Jesus. And it is. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.